This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Grips. For comfort, durability, and grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone. Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. On today's show, we're going to break down the 2023 MotoGP season. Myself, Steve English, Adam Wheeler, Neil Morrison, and David Emmett. It's been a long year, but this is our, our last podcast of 2023. Neil, you look especially devastated at that prospect. Yeah, I hope all of our listeners have got a tissue ready because it's going to be very difficult to sign off from this. I've been looking at your ugly mugs on Zoom for what seems like the, the best part of a year straight. And uh, the fact that there's going to be about three weeks without seeing them on a little square screen is uh, is kind of making me tear up. You could console yourself by watching old Moto2 races back with the sound off and commentating them on them again. <laughs> Maybe pick out a really good FP1 session. That'll, uh, that'll, that'll cheer you up. And Neil, normally you have a tissue ready for another sort of occasion, so I don't think uh, you're going to be that sad. <laughs> Sitting in front of his laptop, no comments about the Paddock Pass podcast only fans page. Adam, um, I'm going to come to you straight away, though, to kick off this show. We're going to grade the season, so a rating out of 10 for you, the 2023 season. Uh, I can't have 40 for obvious reasons, but I, I'll go for a solid 8 because we had a championship that was very Ducati-dominated, but it went down to the last round. Uh, quite unpredictable, fairly dramatic. Um, some, you know, big events for the protagonists or the, the main man in, in terms of Mark Marquez. So, yeah, I'll give it a solid eight. And uh, David Emmett, what about you? What was your rating for out of 10? Uh, I'm pretty much with, uh, uh, with Adam here. Yeah, I mean, eight out of 10, because... I mean, for all of those reasons, we had some fantastic racing, some really good races. We had some uh, fairly tedious races as well. Um, but we had a good tight championship. The championship went all the way down to the to, to the last weekend. Um, there was a good story. There was also, there was a, a little bit of, um, there was a proper rivalry, you know, like Martin and Bagnaia were not all that keen on each other, and that always adds a little bit of spice. Uh, they're also very different personalities. That also makes it more interesting. Um, and there was just all of the insane drama with Mark Marquez leaving Honda and God knows what else. Um, yeah, there, there's just it was um, there. There was always something to be thinking about. Neil, I'm going to let you rate the season out of 30 because you can do Model 3, Model 2 and Model GP because you watched every session of every class this year. Oh, You're definitely the only one of us that did that. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. Absolutely. Um, out of 30, well, I'll give it a 25, 26, I would say. Um, yeah, for the moment, I absolutely agree with both Adam and Dave with regards to Model GP. I thought Model 3 was really interesting this year. Model 2, less so, but... So some interesting stories, some things to, to kind of pick apart from that series. But I think it was the one that, that clearly let the, the whole show down. Um, but yeah, the other classes were great. Model E was also really good this year as well. So um, yeah, I would give it a, probably a 25 out of 30. And if we're going out of 10, I would say probably an 8.5. Um, has the arrival of Ducati improved Moto E, Neil, in your opinion? Yeah. I don't think it's it's super obvious with regards to... Um, you know, in term, you know, if you're looking at the, has the series grown this year? I don't think it has. Has it had the desired effect in that regard, attracting new fans and a new audience? I, I don't think so. Um, but they brought a bike which is very, very user friendly, easy to use, quite spectacular and quite pretty to look at. Impressive in terms of the lap times that it does. Um, and the racing, I think, for the most part, was really good this year. Lots of variety, but didn't really seem to have the desired effect in making the series take off, let's say, capturing the imagination of the uh, the fans. But the racing was great, I thought, yeah. I think the pressure's a little bit on the Ducati marketing department, right? Because they have to somehow relate this product to, you know, the rest of their their activities. I mean, before we had a very kind of obscure Italian brand doing Moto E. Now we have a very significant figure in, in the motorcycling market, but you haven't really felt that connect or spread anymore so I, I think i'd like to see more uh, use of moto e i mean how are ducati using it how they're leveraging it maybe it's still too early because it was just the first year but uh you'd, you'd imagine somebody with their kind of power and might for image um use would, would be doing something decent with moto e 
Yeah, I think for me, Motowi was interesting this year to have made that change. I think it's definitely something that we'll probably dive into a little bit over the off-season, particularly on Patreon, just to give our assessments on how that transition's been. And maybe we'll try and get someone in as well on the call to be able to give us their perspective as well. Let's uh, move to the to the big topics of uh, this podcast, the, the meat of the podcast. Neil, you were top 20 in the uh, MotoGP Fantasy League, oh, which means God. there were 19 people better than you. So um, I, you've mentioned it a few times. The reason that I'm mentioning it is that uh, we've had the Paddock Pass podcast uh, MotoGP Fantasy League supported by Alpine Stars and their new SuperTech or 10 helmet for the last couple of years. It's taken us a little bit of time to be able to get this sorted. But for Mike Falcone for winning last year and for E. Bruto for winning this year, we've been able to organize for a care package from Alpine Stars for them. So the SuperTech or 10 new helmet from Alpine Stars for this year in MotoGP. And it was designed and developed by MotoGP riders where the goal is to go faster and be protected. And they do this by minimizing drag, ensuring optimal aerodynamic stability, the air management inside and outside of the helmet, and then making sure the helmet is comfortable and customizable inside as well. So for both Mike and for E. Bruto, we don't actually know your name, E. Bruto. I doubt that is it. But uh, if you get in contact with us on Twitter, we'll be able to line up getting something delivered to you. So we'll... Keep an, we'll keep an eye on our inbox for your details. As it is, Adam, we're going to move straight into the big the big talking points through the year. What was your race of the year? Hang on, we haven't been through the first talking point yet. Neil, you've moved into the top 20 of the Fantasy League. Uh, what was that? Just determination after such an abject kind of effort in 2022? Uh, yeah, I thought I'll actually try and concentrate on it this year. And there was the small motivation that Steve English was also taking it very seriously. So that was an extra little spicy thing. But um, actually, it became quite quite addictive. It became part of my like weekend routine uh, at the end of Friday and the Saturday morning, spending a little bit of time just kind of really trying to understand who was good. But uh, yeah, previous attempts at, uh, at fantasy teams, both in, in MotoGP and football, had ended. My interest ended after about three really crap weekends. So this year I thought, right, stick it out and see how, how you can go. So um, yeah, fair play to Ibaruto and uh, the chaps at the top and the chap Besses at the top of uh, the, the fantasy league. Uh, who is the Raul Fernandez between Dave and I? I'd say, I'd say Dave. <laughs> I think it is me. I think uh, three races after Mizano, when I realised I still had Danny Pedrosa in my team, I, I but I but I kind of. Are you are you implying that Raúl was intentionally sandbagging all the way through the year by making the <laughs> comparison with having Danny on your team? That's why I said Dave because Dave has the potential to improve, whereas Adam. Well, I suppose a little bit like Raúl, you're living on the reputation of a couple of years ago whenever you were able to to beat the rest of us in the fantasy. So maybe you could make a a case for both of them. I actually found the fantasy quite interesting this year just because me and Neil ended up with a lot of the same parts in our team. And then you try and almost double bluff each other to see who will we put as our gold riders and our silver riders. And uh, the last weekend of the season, I was sure that me and Neil were going the opposite directions with our team selections. It turns out we were pretty much the same. So I knew that I was hosed from the get-go. But it was it was good fun to be able to put a little bit more thought and a little bit more effort into it this year. But uh, Adam, let's get to the race of the year and move on from Neil being the top Paddock Pass podcaster in the, in the Fantasy League. Oh, wow. Okay, uh, race of the year. Obviously, we had 20 to choose from. Um, after a great deal of thought, I've decided to plump for India. We had 40, actually, to choose from. 39? 20 events. Sorry, 39. A bit, we're talking Grand Prix of the year, really, aren't we? We're talking events, not just race. I mean, that's how I interpreted the category. No, if you want to interpret it wrong, it's completely up to you. Right, okay. Now, I'm going for the Grand Prix of India. Um, firstly, because there was so much, you know, will it, won't it happen um, before. Uh, it got so extreme with the hysteria around the conditions we'd find sort of in New Delhi and, and the Bud International Circuit that teams are actually having briefings in the Grand Prix at the Catalan Grand Prix about how to manage health um, sanitation what to eat what not to eat how to be careful uh, there was quite a degree of paranoia about it and then to arrive there and to find a circuit that was you know largely up to the task I mean there were some uh, inconsistencies or problems with the marshalling as we saw with the delays to the uh, the scheduling through the Grand Prix, but it was a good track. Uh, you know, we had some good stuff on the track. Um, last lap, Moto3 drama. 
you know, Pekka Bagnaya's crash, which livened up the championship even more. Marco Bezzecchi was supreme. Uh, Fabio Quartararo actually made a podium with the Yamaha, which was a shock. Uh, the heat made it a really demanding Grand Prix, added like another factor into the racing, which I don't think we'd really seen um, up until that point in the season. And then uh, Jorge Martin's leathers, that whole debacle as well. There was like a lot of talking points, a brand new market, a real sense of occasion. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's sort of the one that really stands out for me. Yeah, it's fair enough. Uh, there was an awful lot went on in India. David, what about you? Uh, well, I was... I'm a lot more boring than um, uh, Adam because all I thought was, um, oh, that was a good race. Uh, and that <laughs> being a good race uh, was a Buriram. I mean, it was a just, just an outstanding race. It's a weird track, Buriram. Um, the atmosphere is always fantastic. You know, the the the, the, the fans are great. Um, the, the, the track is, it, it's really sort of too hot to be holding a, a, a race. Um, it's very demanding. It's not, a, it doesn't look like a particularly interesting layout and yet it produces just absolutely fantastic racing. There's a couple of really good, uh, passing, uh, spots there. And we always end including up in the last corner, including the last corner. Yeah. But I mean, you know, like it's not just the last corner, you know, there's sort of the, the there's turn three, there's what is it? The, the bit of six, six, seven, eight, um, uh, where you'll, where you'll see people try, um, there, there's lots of places where you where you can sort of line people up and stuff and um uh seeing uh, Jorge Martin versus Brad Binder and then it looked like Pekka Banyao was out of it and then he sort of you know starts creeping back and creeping back because uh tire management is is becomes more and more important um and then you know the last couple of laps were absolutely sensational uh, of course, Brad Binder getting robbed because he just ran off track on the final call on the on the final lap, um, like literally just ran his his uh, his tires off the edge of turn six, I think, um, and to which he held his his, his hand up. Um, there was Pekka Banyar's sort of desperate attempt on the penultimate lap. It was just it was just a really thrilling fantastic race it was everything that we that you love about motorcycle racing it had a story which developed and it came really close i'm glad that you went with your race of the year dave because your event of the year obviously would have been the sapang test um <laughs> neil for you what was the race of the year yeah i'm inclined to to agree with dave um and the interesting thing i think from thailand we all came away from that thinking this is this is martin's championship now isn't it so for peko to to kind of reply to that was uh, was seriously quite impressive in the last uh, three races but um, I'm going to take Adam's approach and, and look at an event in general um, and I'm going to say Valencia the final race weekend of the year um, it's really very rare that you would sort of point pinpoint Valencia as, as the best race it doesn't generally throw up great racing in the in the premier class um, but I thought the race on Sunday was great but also just I thought the weekend considering it was a big championship finale it had so much of what you want to see in a championship finale it had so much action and drama between the two lead, lead protagonists not even in just the race and we saw that on Friday afternoon when uh, Jorge Martin was trying to mess with Peko and uh, basically met, kind of contributed to Peko not getting inside the top 10. Then the sprint race was really good. Martin fighting at the front with Binder, Marquez, um, and gaining crucial ground on Peko. And that fed into to Sunday. And even Sunday, there was a little moment, I guess there was a, a good 10-minute spell after uh, Martin had crashed out of the Sunday race when it sort of thought everything went a bit flat. Um, we thought, ah, oh, it's a bit of a, an anticlimax. But then you had further dramas with the two KTMs um, suffering from two different mistakes, which saw them go out of the lead. And then we had a really excellent finale with Dijan Antonio Zarco pushing Banyaya right away. And uh, it was a great chance for Banyaya to kind of just show exactly why he was world champion this year. So I thought that the final race was great. There was so much drama, so much to talk about. Um, and then if we extend it, that whole weekend was just, uh, I mean... You know, it was, that happened what three weeks ago now, and it was a genuinely great finale, I think, to the to the season, a fitting finale. Neil, are you sure you don't want to go back to the Thai Grand Prix just because of the level of accommodation you had? <laughs> yeah, if we were doing a uh, accommodation of the season, I think that would feature pretty pretty low <laughs> on the list, maybe maybe the lowest. But then, when you're paying 120 euros for an entire weekend, then you're not exactly expecting the Ritz Carlton, are you? Yeah, the listeners' uh, curiosity and imagination can, you know, uh, run wild with that one. 
I'll post photos for our Patreon subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the other thing as well, Thailand obviously is always one of the culinary uh, highlights of the year as well. It's always pretty good in Burry Ram. For the uh, chicken and cashew nuts was a personal favourite of mine whenever World Superbikes went there. I'm not really going to get too involved in many of the topics for this one, but I loved the Phillip Island Grand Prix just because of seeing Jorge Martin on the wrong tyres at the end. He was brave to gamble and it didn't work. And you, you knew what was coming, but once it happened, you were still like, oh God, I wish he had just been able to hold on just a little bit longer. So for me, that was my Grand Prix of the year. My race of the year, though, Adam, race two in Valen- in, uh, in Jerez for World Superbikes. That was one of the best things I've ever seen. So that was that was great. But let's move on. Go on, Neil. Oh, sorry. Yeah, just, uh, you know, honorary mentions, I think we should say, to the first sprint of the year, first sprint in history, actually, in Portugal. That was drama, basically, from the first corner until the last. And the uh, I think the second sprint as well in Argentina was just absolutely fantastic. So, um, yeah, it wasn't just all Sunday. I mean, there were quite a few dull sprints, but also a fair share of uh, pretty exciting ones at the start of the year in particular. And then just because everything is, you know, our own opinions about these, the, the man of the year in MotoGP this can be someone that exceeded your expectations someone that impressed you someone that just got the job done so Adam what about you who was your man of the year I think I tip Pekka Bagnaia even from the beginning of the season to be champion again so even though my performance in the fantasy league was pathetic I think I uh, managed to get that one right especially when you boys were plumping for Jorge Martin for the second part of the season uh, you know, it really went on, out in the limb. I'd predicting by yeah, now at the start of the year. It was risky. Factory Ducati rider, the reigning world champion. <laughs> that is impressive. Wow. What else, else add? I'm going to say that uh, over the course of the next ten years, Man City are going to win a couple of Premier League titles. <laughs> Listen, put it into context. I already did. I said you were all like, you know, all over Martin. You know, you really just in the second half of the year. You just said you can't go back to round one and say I picked it all and you lads were wrong. Whenever we were halfway through the season and you went with the four man, I'm not buying that ad. If you want to pick Pecco as your man of the year, I got no problem with it. But don't try and throw the rest of us under the bus. No, no, no. I, I feel very righteous. Um, listen, honourable mentions as well to you know Marco Bezzecchi and of course Pedro Acosta for the most. Oh, a shining kind of record in just three years of world championship competition. But for my man of the year, I'm going to pick Mark Marquez because he gave us a bit of everything. Uh, I think you know, it was his most complete season since 2019, but, um, you know, largely for negative reasons. I mean, he reached a personal record of 29 crashes. That's two more than 2017 season. And actually with Joan Mir, I think HRC were responsible for about 14 to 15% of all MotoGP crashes this year. So it was not um, a pain-free and very easy season for, for the Japanese squad. Uh, I think his gestures in Mugello and, and Saxon Ring pretty much summed up you know, what was going on. Um, he created a whole sort of whirlwind of drama around him. I mean, he missed Grand Prix um, in Argentina, America and Jerez after that first round uh, crash uh, with Miguel Oliveira and hitting um, Portugal's only rider on the grid. In Portugal, probably wasn't the safest tactic if he wanted to get out of Portimao in one piece. Uh, but that kind of really just launched Mark's season um, in a dramatic way. You know, he didn't sort of pull his punches in criticism um, of the bike or HRC at times. And he wound us up nicely in Mizano with the whole, again, Willy won't he? And then he left his decision until the last minute. And, um, you know, one podium and finishing 14th in the championship as the third best rider on a Japanese bike uh, says it was an absolute disaster of a year. But he's still the man that everybody's been talking about. And that shows his class. And also look who everybody was following at the Valencia test. Yeah, I also thought as well, that pole lap in Portimao to start the season was one of those things where you looked at it and you said, only Mark Marquez could have done that. David, what about you? Who is your man of the year? Uh, my man of the year is going to be Jorge Martin. Um, uh, again, a little bit of a lazy choice, but it's hard not to just because of what he did this year. Um, uh, last year, obviously, he was annoyed not to be promoted to the factory Ducati team. That gave him some real, something extra this year. It it provided a really massive motivation and you could tell, like he was really, you know, he had had the bit between his teeth for for a lot this year. He got off to a bit of a rough season, but the the second half of this season, um, uh, of the 23 season, was 
just astonishing, just it, it really impressive. He dominated so often, um, and I really I just loved his his chutzpah, his 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 hubris. He just he believed he truly believed that he was the best rider in the world and everyone else needed to get out of his way so that he could get on with winning a championship. Um, he felt like he deserved it. Uh, the, in, you know, he tripped himself up a couple of times. I think, was it Indonesia that he crashed out of the lead for no good reason whatsoever other than, you know, oh, it's all right, I'm, gonna, I'm in the lead. I thought the, the, the decision to go for the soft tyre in Phillip Island was, again, one of those things which is just pure hubris. Um, but also, I, I mean, you need that self-confidence to be able to compete. Um, and sometimes it'll lead you down the wrong path. But, you know, he came within, uh, what is it, half a lap of winning the race uh, on the soft tyre, something which no one else believed was was going to be possible. I know it turned out not to be possible, but then he only finished, what was it, I think less than a second or so off of the uh, off of victory. So he came very, very close indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he just looked like a really... He was really strong and and really sort of spiced the championship up. Yeah, for me, from the outside looking in, I love that about Martin. I thought he just seemed like a guy that was just there purely to prove I'm faster than you. And that's something that we all love in a racer. I, I think Jorge Martin, as Dave mentioned, you know, contributed so much to the championship this year. Uh, for the man with the crappiest nickname on the grid, uh, you know, he has to do something <laughs> about that. But, you know, seeing his, him shaking his head, just trying to deal with situations in Valencia and also Phillip Island, uh, also, you know, like I mentioned in India as well, uh, he was a, a brilliant racer, fantastically natural. And that's something we could see with his outright speed, even back in the Moto3 days, with all those pole positions. Uh, but he really sort of found his groove with the Ducati this year compared to 2022. So, uh, yeah, full props. Yeah, one or two little little things at the end of the year, which maybe didn't shine the best the best kind of light on him you know grabbing part of his anatomy after he won the race uh, I think was maybe not the wisest thing to do when you think of the the kind of the whole drama around the Spanish head of FA in the Women's Football World Cup final his actions not really great to be doing something the same as him after he won the the sprint race in Valencia and then also um, his uh, faux pas on a a well-known Spanish TV show uh, recently but yeah I agree coming away from Austria I think it was we were all fearing the worst that the championship was just going to be a procession. Um, and the fact that Martin managed to, to really make a fist out of it um, just made this actually a very memorable year because I think there was point, one, one point in the year where we were all fearing that this was going to be a pretty forgettable year. I mean, Martin doesn't come across as like the smartest cookie but, you know, he does come across as somebody, like Dave said, is fantastically fierce when it comes to his motorcycle racing. And and then it's just about whether you like the character or not. And for some, that he's a bit too swarmy, a bit too arrogant. Um, but then, again, like Dave hints, maybe you need that in the championship because somebody like Pekka Bagnaya is just uh, always, always likable. Uh, he always seems to be friendly and open, accessible. So maybe you need a little bit of uh, a contrary just to, to hype things up sometimes. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, and Martin's a good example of it. You can't be a fast MotoGP rider now and not be smart, though. Like on the bike, you need to be you need to be a genius if you're going to be fast on a MotoGP bike. And I think it's one of those things that you can be quick if you're lacking a little bit mentally, but to be able to put together a season like he did with 19 sprints, 20 Grand Prix, I think that the the outside image of him is, I think, a little bit unfair because he just he's. He, like I said, he's there to to bulldoze the opposition. He wants to just constantly remind them that I'm faster than you, and I think that kind of takes over an awful lot in the persona that we see. But he has to be he has to be very intelligent on the bike to be able to do what he does. So I think. Martin, for me, was my man of the year in MotoGP as well. Neil, what about you though? Uh, just if I can butt in. Um... The other thing about Martin is, uh, you know, there were times when he would uh, sort of come up to the media centre and there'd be a queue and he'd just, you know, piss off like he didn't care. He had no interest in speaking to us and made it very clear to, the, uh, to us that he had no interest in speaking to us and would just wander off, despite the fact that he's a champion, you know. And I, uh, I mean, you have to respect that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there are also, uh, he had some help from, uh, from uh, the... Uh, shall we say, Pramax Press Office, which is <laughs> neither an office nor uh, have a, has anything to do with the press. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I always respect it when riders make it really obvious that they want nothing to do with us. 
Yeah, I think that observation about what he contributed in his media debriefs is spot on. Uh, he sort of dealt with some kind of stupid questions in a good way. Uh, he also, like you say, put his character across when he was um, either pissed off or happy or just basically wanted to get rid of us. I mean, that is kind of admirable in itself. Um, you know, maybe as a contrast, somebody like Marco Bezzecchi would just like toss away media debris sometimes. Um, you know, I think we should maybe have a category for which rider throughout sort of 20 Grand Prix and 40 races, um, you know, enjoyed or perhaps didn't enjoy media debriefs the most and then relaying their thoughts to us. But, uh, you know, I think with Martin, the, the biggest thing I th- we can all sense is a bit of a chip on the shoulder and not only perhaps for his background or some of the way that people judge him in MotoGP, but also the way he's handled by Ducati or the way that he feels he's been handled by Ducati. And I do think, you know, we have to wonder whether it's, um you know, he's reached his peak this year, but, uh, you know, it was something to see in, in 2024 for sure. But uh, that, that relationship with that factory, um, I think is going to come under the microscope. What I find interesting, you're dead right about him having a chip on his shoulder. I think that makes him really, really fast. Uh, and I think that was why he should stay in a, in a satellite zone. Because if he goes to the, especially if he went to the factory Ducati team, uh, he has no reason to have a chip, a chip on his shoulder anymore. And I think that would make him slower. Yeah, the six inches between the ears does make a big difference and being slighted makes a massive difference for riders. Neil, what about you? Who was your man of the year? Well, it is very tempting to agree with Dave and say that Martin was the, the man of the year, mainly because he made a, a game of this. He made a, a competition, a spectacle of it when it was looking as though it was just um, going one way. But I'm going to go with the, the champion, with uh, Peko, because he's one of, what, 13 riders now, I think, to have... Um, to have defended a premier class crown. Um, so fairly select company. Um, I think this season was definitely more impressive than 2022, his first championship year. Um, I thought last year he, in some respects, was a bit of a one-trick pony. You would see him get out front, lead, come under really sustained pressure and hold his nerve. Um, but there were also so many doubts about last year. He crashed so much in really critical, high-pressure situations. And his main rival was Fabio Quattararo on such an inferior bike. I think this year really brought the best out of Peko that he was riding, or sorry, racing against a guy that was so, so fast, maybe even faster than him um, on the same bike. So the, the, the kind of the stakes were raised. Um, and I just thought he managed to to, man- to manage the whole situation so, so well. Um, and he's kind of showing that he is a bit of an expert at just, deflecting any kind of pressure that's on his shoulders um also clearly in the second half of the year sprints were not his forte but when you look at his performances on sunday he was on the podium in 15 of the 20 feature races on the sunday and in the five that he didn't finish um two of those he crashed out of the lead which is what cota and barcelona two of them he crashed out of second argentina and india and then there was another one where was that le mans where he, he would have been fighting for the victory had he not come into collision with Vinales. So pretty much every single Sunday, Banyaya was at least fighting for the podium, if not better. Um, and just his kind of way of working through a weekend um, with his with his crew chief, Christian Gabarini, that really paid off. And you just have to look at, basically, he's a double world champion and he's achieved both of those world championships at the final race of the year in very, very high pressure, uh, high stake situations. Um, yeah, I just thought it was really remarkable and impressive how he how he kind of carried himself. Didn't really ever lose his cool. Um, if he did, we didn't see it. And I'm not just talking about Martin trying to ruffle him up. Think about the number of times that Mark Marquez chose to try and follow him in qualifying. And obviously this would have infuriated him in Ducati, but he didn't show it. And that's the kind of a mark of a champion, someone that doesn't let these kind of little things get under your skin and you can kind of just brush them off. And I think it really, it, it bodes well for next year because Mark is going to be doing that a hell of a lot in 2024. But Pekka was shown that he's kind of up to the sort of mental challenge you know, basically, when it comes down to trying to to play those sort of um, mind games, I think he's he's kind of up to the task. And you know, the, this last season has has proved that. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see whether Peko starts following Mark next season. Now they're on the same bike. Um, I do think that. I mean, like, I really feel that Peko made a really big step this year. He's so much more of a complete rider, uh, but he's still making those 
just incredible mistakes. Crashing out of the lead in uh, at Cota was, um, you know, just bizarre. But uh, there, there was no reason for it whatsoever. You know, again, crashing out of the lead, I think in um, in India. Um, second. Oh, was it? Yeah, crashing out a second. Again, there's there's no reason for him to, uh, to to make those sort of mistakes. There was there was time after time where he did where he did that, and because certainly, like up to Barcelona, it looked like he was just going to walk the championship, uh, but it but it was really close at the end. So uh, I do think he rode much better. And the best thing about this season is the fact that Martin and Banyaya really pushed each other, and and they both lifted each other up to a higher level. Yeah, and I think he showed another string to his bow last year. It was get out front, lead. This year, he showed that he could come through the pack and fight. You think of his his victory at Jerez. You know, he really had these kind of battling instincts this year. And I do agree with you. There are still a few too many mistakes in his makeup. Um, but um, but yeah, I thought we saw a, definitely a more complete, more aggressive, more kind of uh, yeah, complete racer than than we did a year ago. Now, I think you've also written um, somewhere as well how tough Bagnaya is, and that's an important thing to credit. I mean, if you remember the crash in Le Mans with uh, Maverick Vinales, didn't that lead to a slight, like a fractured heel? And then, of course, Catalonia. And, and yeah, I mean, and Catalonia was massive. I mean, that could have finished a season. But then, you know, he was there, you know, competing at the following round and, and really kept things on track. So that's something where... You know, Bagnaya doesn't make a lot of mistakes. I mean, Dave said, you know, there are some strange ones and high profile ones, but he doesn't really have massive crashes, uh, you know, in comparison to, say, like, you know, Marquez and Mia. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, that's another facet of his arsenal. Yeah, I do think as well, the the crash is an interesting one that you mentioned, Neil, because next year, up against Adam's man of the year, Mark Marquez, can he afford to have five non-scores when Mark's going to be back on a competitive bike? We know what Mark is like whenever he's got that good bike underneath him. He's relentless and doesn't make big mistakes in races. Maybe Mark's changed after the last few years, but we'll have to, that's going to be the big storyline going into next year. Adam, I'm going to ask you to pick the next topic. Do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? Uh, good news. Okay, very good. Let's go for surprise of the year then in that case. Neil, you've been, you've been last off the bat the last couple of times. So let's come to you for your surprise of the year. Um, well, let's just take ourselves back to um, March before the season started. And if we had painted a scenario where the two Japanese manufacturers were str- would struggle this year, I think we would say, okay. But if we painted a situation where they struggled to the extent that they did in 2023, I think none of us could have envisioned just how tough it would have been for, for Honda and Yamaha this year. Um, I mean, we're talking about situations where Neither manufacturer could get a single bike inside the top 10 at the German Grand Prix the first time since 1967, I think it was. Um, We were looking at a situation where, in many regards, two of the best, well, two of the best riders on the grid, Fabio Quattararo and Marc Marquez, finished 10th and 14th in the championship um, with just a very limited number of podiums between them. Um, I know there were signs of light towards the end of the season for uh, Yamaha. Um, and certainly to Valencia test for Honda, but for them to have struggled to the extent that they did, I thought was uh, was quite remarkable. Um, and just one of those situations where you think back to even as recently as 2019 or 2020, like if you'd said to us in either of those seasons that this would develop three, four years later, I think we would have written you off as a as a madman or a madwoman, completely. So, um, yeah, I think that has to be the the big surprise. Look at the championship and, um, yeah, Quattararo, 10th place overall. He was the, the highest placed Japanese manufacturer. Um, and it didn't really get much better from there. Um, yeah, I think the next best was Morbidelli in 13th and Marquez in, in 14th. Um, and just how far off they were, um, particularly from Ducati, Um yeah, it was, 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 was crazy. I mean, we, we saw signs of it in preseason, but I didn't think it was going to be this bad. I think that, uh, the, uh, I think that Honda was much worse than, um, any, than Yamaha. 
uh, obviously you saw it with the crashes. You saw how many uh, times the or how many times they had to bring in replacement riders. You know, we had Stefan Bradl coming, we had uh, Ike Lekuona coming in. I think they uh, they rode something like thirteen rounds between the two of them, um, uh, replacing various riders. We saw pretty much um, uh, everyone except for Takanakagami miss races. That bike was just no good. The Yamaha, on the other hand, if you look at some of the, if you look at in terms of fast race laps, you know, fastest race laps and race times, it's quite often that you'd see the Yamaha would have really really strong pace but Yamaha was just their problem was that they couldn't qualify they couldn't get the best out of a fast tire and um, they have one weakness the one weakness is you know they just don't have any drive out corners Um, the Honda only does one one thing well whereas the Yamaha does a lot of things well but has one really big weakness yeah I mean Honda basically had to wait until Austria for Marc Marquez to score points on a Sunday and Joan Mir scored points on the Sunday in five occasions out of 20, which is insane for a guy that was world champion in 2020. And Dave used the word hubris. Maybe it's a good thing that this happened to the Japanese, you know, because they are needing to reset or to reignite their uh, their projects in a way. I mean, too often in the past, you know, the Yamaha have been saved by the likes of Fabio Quattararo or Honda have relied on Mark Marcus's brilliance. And now perhaps they're having to reorientate things just to make them overall more competitive and, and to be able to bring something to the fight. I think that losing Mark Marcus is the most important thing and the best thing that could have happened to Honda because they now have to build a good bike. And we already saw at the uh, Valencia test, I'm just writing about this at the moment, um, that the new bike looks really much much better it looks like it's going to end up being competitive yeah well that might well be the surprise of the year next year dave if the <laughs> honda is competitive what about you though adam what was your surprise of the year my surprise perhaps not that surprising really considering that the concept behind it and the, the general thought by dorna but just how well the sprints worked out um especially after all the build-up where there was a lot of concern, a lot of consternation, uh, you know, amongst the riders and the teams that it was too much, uh, that there would be too much uh, pressure, too much demand on the whole MotoGP grid. I mean, there was a little bit of a case for that. And I think by the time we got to Mugello around sort of round seven of the championship, that was the last time I can remember the riders being asked about how uh, frenetic and chaotic the sprints were, you know, whether they had calmed down, whether riders were being a little bit more measured in their approach, because uh, we had had something crazy like more than 22 crashes per weekend, um, you know, for the first sort of five or six Grand Prix. And then things started to sort of taper off a little bit. And then, you know, if you look on the other side of it in terms of promotion, then it, it was an outright success. I mean, Dorna recently released figures to say there's been a 25% increase in social media figures. They're now over 50 million. Uh, TV audiences in the first part of the season had risen by 20% over 2022. Um, you know, there was a 51% increase in attendances uh, for the first part of the season. So, you know, I think the sprint, by and largely, do they need to be in every Grand Prix? That's probably the biggest question still on, on the block. But otherwise, it's it's been uh, a revelation, I think, for MotoGP. Yeah, I think that they're great because there's a lot of times for me during the course of the season, just because the way it is with World Superbikes and how the calendar kind of works with endurance and everything like that for me, Junior GP, whatever it would be. There's been a lot of times whenever I've kind of not really been able to put the time in to watch all the practice sessions for a MotoGP weekend. It might be where I could only watch qualifying in the race. And then suddenly to have the sprint, it really gave me, you know, an anchor point for the weekend. I have to watch this because it's a race. And, you know, like if that's what it's like for me, I'd imagine for an awful lot of fans, it's like that as well. And I thought it was a really good step. I was excited for the sprint whenever it was announced just because of what the Super Bowl race has been for World Superbikes. So I'm not surprised the sprint was successful. I'm surprised it took so many people so long to accept that it was going to be something that was going to be a cornerstone of a weekend. Yeah, I I, I do think it does... put a lot of pressure on riders and teams it's a lot of extra work they've got no time to set the bike up uh, it made a big difference when they made fp1 basically on time to just gave it a, made it free practice um and only having fp2 uh, counting towards uh, q2 um i do think i mean look it, it's definitely added something but i think you can either have 
um, sprint races and uh, 18 rounds, or you can have 22 rounds of MotoGP. But I think sprint races and 22 rounds next year is going to be too much. And so I thought sprint races and 20 rounds were, were too much. And I also think it's a bit unfortunate that we started the year off in Portimao, which is uh, a, a, um, a track where there it is very easy to crash. It's not a big wide track. It's a narrow track and it's, it's easy to make, uh, to make mistakes. Mistakes get p- uh, punished heavily. Yeah, it is always one of the things that's interesting for me when we go to Portimao is that it's a very wide track, but a very narrow line and very one line. And that's what makes it really difficult in the sprint race or a Super Bowl race as well. David, what about you, though? What was your surprise of the year? Uh, my surprise of the year was um, uh, Fabio Di Gian Antonio um, stealing uh, Neil's thunder here. Um, the I mean, I thought that Fabio was, you know, just a guy, a perfectly talented ra- racer, uh, very good, um, but replaceable, completely replaceable by, you know, plenty of other very talented motorcycle racers. Uh, but towards the end of the season, like, they they changed his seating position, they changed his setup a little bit, and that made a huge step, made a huge difference. Obviously, having uh, Frankie Carcetti made a, a big difference for him as well. Uh, that relationship worked really well. But at the, the, end of the, the end of the season, he was just exceptional. Um, uh, you know, podiums in sprint races in the main, uh, in the main, in the main race, that was uh, just, yeah. I mean, he really showed his class. I uh, I remember in the media debrief in Qatar, uh, he kind of on the Thursday said, yeah, I'm here to win. And Matt Burt, um, you know, sort of the world feed commentator, and I looked at each other as if to say, uh, you know, um, share what you're smoking, uh, Fabio. It's, um, <laughs> it's obviously pretty good. But, uh, you know, there he, there he was, like, going for it. Um, so, I mean, you're completely right there, Dave. But... I mean, surely the most surprising moment of the year was you trying tiramisu in Mizano. <laughs> I can't. I, I, it's all. It's all a blank. Yeah, Dave seemed at a loss for words there momentarily as he had that flashback. We should maybe rename this uh, this section um, "biggest slice of humble pie served up this year" rather than uh, <laughs> the biggest surprise this year for Dijan Antonio's performance. I think it was in Indonesia. Well, we could also rename it the uh, the topic which Adam most enjoys annoying Neil over, uh, <laughs> um, because that's been pretty relentless since Indonesia as well. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Dave. Dijan Antonio's reformation in the kind of the final parts of the season was was remarkable. Um, I hadn't seen much from him in Moto Two that suggested that he could do something like this. Um, I know the Ducati is such a brilliant package. So well rounded that pretty much anyone can go fast on it this year. I mean, we had what six riders, six different riders for from Ducati winning races, um, seven winning either a race or a sprint, um, all of them on the podium. However, for Dijan Antonio to, to be as strong and to be as fast and to be really pushing the, the very best in the class in the last couple of races of the year, off the year while he was fighting for a job with his future completely uncertain, I think that's another thing we have to take into account. He rode the best part of his season with the the, the kind of the the nagging. Uh, fear of of not being in MotoGP in 2024 hanging over him, um, you know it was it was a, a remarkable turnaround. Can I also just say that I think it's very heartwarming as well that he's still in MotoGP because how many times was he telling us in the the last five to six races that you know his results merited a place on the grid that he deserved to be there next year. And, uh, you know, as we know, things don't always happen uh, for sort of nice guys or people that deserve good things sometimes. And so, uh, you know, I think Uchio Salici was uh, saying on the World Feed that, you know, Mooney VR46 were looking towards a young rider um, at one point, And that seemed to wipe uh, Digier out from a ride in 2024. But then that spun right around and he's, he's back on the grid. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's one of those things Ad, where... Did you deserved not to have a ride until that final third of the season? And, you know, the final third of the season, he showed everyone what he could do. Now it's up to him to show that for a full season and show that it wasn't just a case of, I need a contract, I found motivation. And that's what's going to be interesting next year. I thought, for me, Frankie Carcetti, fair play to him, because he's won a world championship with Joan Mayer. He's now done this with Digia. Maybe... You know, Frankie deserves a lot more credit than what he was given when he came into the MotoGP paddock, given uh, what he had achieved in BSB and other series. So I think it's interesting to see how that's going to develop. And then his reward is obviously to work with Mark Marquez next year. So uh, I think that's going to be quite interesting. Now we move from our surprises of the year, the, the good news, to the bad news. 
our gripes of the year? What's our bones of contention through the course of the season? David, your face has just lit up. <laughs> so you must have just a list of gripes. What's on, what's on the naughty list for you, Mr. Emmett? How long have we gone? Yeah, exactly. I was going to say you could go off and make your, <laughs> grab yourself a cup of tea. Now, I, I shall keep this, I shall keep it short because uh, the, the, there's, you know, a lot of it we, we all agree with, stuff like um, the idiocy of the calendar and stuff. Um, I shall let others cover that. But what particularly annoyed me this year was the fact that um, all of the tyre pressure drama, everyone was blaming Michelin. And nobody was blaming the people who are really to blame for this, which is Ducati. Because if Ducati hadn't come up with all of this aero, if they hadn't come up with their ride height devices, if they hadn't completely transformed the way that a MotoGP were, uh, a bike works, we wouldn't even be discussing it. Um, because all of a sudden there's, you know, a lot more load on the front uh, on the front tire. It's been impossible to get a new tire, a new front tire. You, I mean, like. You see a lot of people say, why don't you Michelin just bring a new tire, uh, bring a, a new front tire? You could change a new rear tire and that takes a little bit of getting used to. But changing a front tire, the, the front tire is the direct line of communication between the asphalt and the and the rider's brain. And if you change anything about it, um, it really upsets riders. Riders, it, it, it can you know, it can end riders' careers. Um just switching a t switching a tire. I mean, if you want to see lots of crashes, what they should do next year is just immediately switch to the uh, uh, switch to to the new um, Michelin uh, front tire, which they hope to be bringing for the for twenty five. Um, but for me, yes, Michelin should do something to improve the way that they deal with the front tire. Um, but uh, the reason we need a new front tire is because Ducati uh, brought all of this aerodynamics, brought all of these ride height devices, and the other factories have all developed it and, and pushed it further and further. You know, like Aprilia have gone a long way in this. KTM have done a fantastic job in doing this. Um, uh, but it's, it's ruined a lot of things. And we're going to see a lot of people, I think... Um, you know, we're going to see a lot of people disqualified next year and, and, and it's going to really ruin things. Dave, does that really get your nod for gripe of the year over the overzealous uh, parking attendance at TT Circuit? <laughs> yeah, but that's a given. That's like complaining about the weather, really. You know, that's just, uh, it's, it's not something you could change. It's just, uh, every time you know, every time I go to uh, Assen on a motor on a motorbike, I know that I'm going to be stopped by the, uh, by the parking attendants because that's, you know that's just the the way it is. It's you know it's is water wet. Are the security guards at Athens absolute arseholes? It's just not <laughs> a, you know it's it's not a question. Yeah, there is some guarantees in life. And uh, Adam, what about you? What's your your gripe of the year? David's given you a little bit of a fodder to go after there. Will you go after one of them? Uh... It's hard not to make a comment on the calendar, but we knew it would be like that even, you know, before the season started, uh, the way the, the, the scheduling worked out. But six Grand Prix, like on four continents in the last seven weeks was particularly arduous. I think MotoGP was on the verge of eating itself. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was it was a tough run there. Other than that, it was pretty much a Ducati show this year, uh, aside from Alex Rins, um, his victory in Cotta, and then also Aprilia popping up. You know, there were no other significant people troubling the top of, of, the, of the, the race standing on a regular basis. Brad Binder's um, best efforts aside, I mean, there were six Ducatis in the final top nine or ten of the championship, so it was a bit of a rout, and uh, I just... I hope, you know, the, the other factories can raise their game and, and threaten that a little bit next year. Um, other than that, I just want to make a comment about the stupid scheduling again for Phillip Island because we had a fantastic venue, a lot of people there on Saturday when it wasn't raining, and then just the whole thing went to shit again on Sunday. Um, you know, the, the commission there, you sort of, I can't even remember what it's called, the GP commission or whatever. Um, Corporation. You know, do, yeah, just do something, you know, just turn it around, uh, choose a different time, work something out because uh, it's an iconic event. Don't say and just it, Dave. Hey, don't you say it. <laughs> no, it's, I was just going to point out that uh, Adam was about to upset um, uh, upset you, Steve, because uh, you don't want anyone suggesting that someone should encroach on World Superbikes. Uh, do it. Uh, weekend do it. There. Do it. Do it. No, I mean, like what we should the, do. What the, we the should problem do with it is that they can't, though, because there's too much money to be had from having Qatar as the open race of the year. Keep it in Qatar. No, nah, fuck it in Formula Qatar. One. That's what it is. 
there's a lot more money comes in from Formula One than comes in from MotoGP. So, so I, I can't blame the Aussies for keeping World Superbikes in the uh, end of the Aussie summer and giving me something to look forward to as I look out on a cold, dark Dublin and thinking, you know what? At least I'll be in Australia in a couple of months. Neil, what about you? What's your gripe of the year? Well, uh, not to trod on, uh, sorry, not to go over well trod ground, but yeah, the, the calendar was was pretty wild. Uh, that end of season was uh, was definitely a slog, but we had a, a good championship to, to kind of carry us through. Um, I do think that the kind of current situation in MotoGP, I mean, we just take it as a given now, but the whole aerodynamics era of MotoGP, I mean, it's not really a good thing, is it? Like, it's okay, you get to see interesting bikes, bike looking very different to anything that we've ever seen before, anything that's that's on the market to buy as a, as a road user. Um, but it doesn't enhance the show. Um, and I just think how good the racing could be if we didn't have um, this kind of aerodynamic situation in the, the premier class right now. And the fact that you have a manufacturer like KTM going to um, someone like Red Bull and, and you know starting a partnership there and just the, the kind of the money and the investment that is now needed to be competitive in MotoGP is not just about building a, a super strong engine. It's having a team of aerodynamic engineers. And I don't, I just think that this isn't the... This isn't the direction that the sport should have been allowed to go in. Um, and I think it's quite disappointing that it's it's now in this situation. And, you know, it's kind of a, it's strange because I think there were a lot of points in the first half of the season where we thought, oh, the racing is really quite tedious. It's quite dull. And in the second half of the year, we had lots of, lots of really, really good races. Um, um, and it was a little bit similar last year. A lot of tedious races in the first half end of ended up being a, a pretty good season um, by the end. Um, but yeah, when I, I, I look back to races like Assen, where you basically have five guys together on the track, yet no one can get close enough to the person ahead to make an overtake because the front tire pressure rockets up as a result of the as a result of the aerodynamics, as a result of the, the ride height devices, um, and and no one can really get close enough to, to overtake, and that just impacts the the show completely. So, yeah, this is this is a gripe that's not just uh, from this year; it was also there last year. Um, and just a minor thing, um, having to commentate on Model Two practice sessions <laughs> in the final third of the year that was something that really didn't fill me with that much excitement. There was lots going on in Model Two in terms of riders coming through. I'm a huge, huge fan of Pedro Acosta and Fermin Aldeguer. I think these guys are going to be right at the top of MotoGP in about five or six years' time. But the racing was tedious, dull. I'm looking at the second half of the year and I'm thinking Barcelona was pretty much the only race worthy of note. Everything else was pretty dull and there was only so much you could say about Pedro Acosta. There was only so much you could say about Fermin Aldeguer. And by the time we got to Sepang, I just thought, I'm done. I'm empty. <laughs> Stick a fork in me. <laughs> Yeah, uh, quite looking forward to seeing uh, what how Pirelli's changed motor too, but that's a separate topic. But yeah, just about the uh, about the aerodynamics. The problem with aerodynamics is that um, it they have a significant effect on the importance of the bike. Engineers love them because really they uh, eliminate a certain amount of of the uh, effect that a rider can have. Um, you know, engineers are working on a bike. They want to make the best bike possible. It's, they want to be as certain a victory as possible. And the one thing that they can't control is the rider. So as long as they can control the, control the bike, that's why they love them. That's why they want to keep them. That's why it's very difficult to actually uh, eliminate them. But I think MotoGP, motorcycle racing, is a is a sport which should be about the rider and about the ability of the rider, uh, and I think aerodynamics detract from that much much more than a lot of other um, uh, than a lot of other things. And and yeah, I would be all for scrapping them. We're not going to do that. I interviewed Corrado Cecchinelli. He said uh, it's good to have a little bit of aerodynamics because it, it makes it 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 immediately makes the MotoGP bikes identifiable as MotoGP bikes, as prototypes, but uh, they have to be uh, severely restricted. That's actually interesting, Dave, because it is one of the things that we talked about last week's show with uh, yourself and Gordo, whenever Gordo was talking about the BMW, the aero was there to actually just give cooling rather than really anything else. We're going to move on to our next topic, and Adam, I'm going to give you the floor for 30 seconds before we ignore it completely. Guess what? There's overtaking in, in, in motorcycle racing. Why do you hate to see overtakes of the year as an award? Oh, Steve. I mean, 
I don't want to piss on your chips, but this is just like a, a social media thing. You know, you do like 24 hours after the event. Trying to recall an overtaking move from like 40 races this year is just impossible. Um, so I mean, I, you're getting on that, but not to that extent. Yeah, uh, I, I will abstain. <laughs> Even Dave remembered that there was a move around the outside by someone that excited him. I thought that was a good that was a good shout, Dave. Whenever because we, we threw it open before the the pod for what we wanted as our overtakes of the year. Overtakes are like are what makes racing racing and watchable. It's like basically complaining about the goal of the season in, in a football kind I'm of trying to remember year. them like, that's my point <laughs> yeah but this is, this is it i mean the, 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 really what should happen is you shouldn't be able to remember the uh, overtake of the year because there should be so many good overtakes that you you know it's hard to tell them apart it's a bit like you know sort of uh, i don't know re- receptions or something in the in the nfl or it, it's not like football where you know you can have goal of the year because there's only about three scored well, I'll tell you what, Steve. The reason you keep your fans. Yeah, well, <laughs> not now. We're in a, we're in a hot streak. But if you know, if you want an effort from me, then I'll say pick any of the eight or nine Grand Prix where Ayumo Sasaki was a victim on the last lap. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but he's the people's champion. Ad. Dave, are you gonna are you gonna pick an overtake of the year? I'm gonna pick an overtake of the year, one which failed, which was uh, in my final race. Uh, uh, well, uh, the, the the penultimate lap. Pekka Banyar tries to go around the outside of Brad Binder and Jorge Martin into the final corner and very, very nearly makes it. Um, it was, ju- it was an outstanding, insane, uh, brave, idiotic. It was everything you wanted in an overtake. And it was, it was, I mean, apart from the fact that you didn't want him to succeed because you wanted the championship to, to, to stay open. Uh, but you know, he deserved to, he, just on the basis of, of his attempt, he deserved it. I absolutely love that in the most David Emmett way imaginable, we've given you a very specific task and you've said, my favourite thing that happened for this specific task is when it didn't work out. So, <laughs> so fair play, Dave. You're the Christmas curmudgery once also, again. Also, recency your- bias. Recency bias. Yeah, also. Yeah, also. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Always recency bias. There was an overtake at the start of the year as well. I'm sure it happened. Um, Neil, what about you? Was your overtake earlier than the penultimate lap of the penultimate race? <laughs> uh, it was, Steve. Yeah. I mean, there was a couple of uh, a couple of mentions, I think, that we should make. I think Mark Marquez made a brilliant two and one at uh, at Portimao in the first race of the year, the first sprint of the year, sorry, on Jack Miller and I think Miguel Oliveira. Um, when they were trying to overtake each other, Mark was very opportunistic and managed to dive under both of them riding in positions that he really shouldn't have been in also Brad Binder in the Argentina sprint 15th on the grid he came out of turn one fifth that was pretty remarkable um, but I'm going to go with uh, Jorge Martin's start at Indonesia I think he was sixth on the grid and he managed to exit the first turn in first and that was uh, pretty remarkable when um, we thought really that uh, the Martinator could do no wrong. He managed to pick off five riders in one go, and I think that's obviously testament to Caddy's uh, new start device, which they brought from the Austrian Grand Prix, and which uh, and but- which was banned the the uh, from the next race. I do like that Neil's award was launch control of the year and we're going to give that to Ducati. That, that's that's almost as good as Dave's almost overtake of the year. And uh, Adam, I side with you on this. It's motorcycle racing. There's a lot of overtakes. I think to signal any of them out is quite difficult. And it that's where the race of the year becomes far more important. Let's move on to the, the last thing of the year for us as well, our, our own personal highlights. And Adam, I came to you last time just because uh, you were going to be the, the grouchy one. So let's give you your moment of the year first. Uh, two quick things. Um, a little one. I loved the one of the last MotoGP Legends presentations. Um, it was Hans-Jörg and Scheidt. I probably pronounced that wrong. Apologies. That was at the Saxon Ring. But I love it when MotoGP celebrates its heritage and it's coming up. This was the 75th season. Uh, 2024 is the 75th year. So I really hope the Donor got their shit together and they're really going to commemorate this sport and this championship in the proper way. Uh, this was a fantastic gesture for, you know, a rider that perhaps not many people have heard of, but he brought along his his, his bike. He brought along, you know, his an old toolbox even. Um, there were some fantastic stories and it was um, a really, really sort of, you know, nice commemorative event. Other than that, it was just being at the French DP. I mean, it was the thousandth Grand Prix. Um, Le Mans broke a record. Uh, there was more than a quarter of a million people through the gate across all three days. The weather was pretty reliable. And I just remember being on the circuit road. I think it was Sunday morning. Or actually, it might have been Saturday. 
before the sprint and just sort of turning around and looking at the fences and thinking it is absolutely rammed um, across the track in the grandstands there was not a seat to be found and then behind me at the fence itself people were just like leaning against it trying to get a view trying to get some sort of vantage spot and I thought you know this is a real occasion um, you know this is really big and it, Fabio Quattararo wasn't having a great season Joan Zarco was having a very Joan Zarco season uh, so it wasn't like they had a French rider surging ahead at the front of the championship. I thought it was just a really good celebration of what is a well-run event and um, a sport kind of in boom in that particular territory at the moment. And it was uh, that was that was cool to be sort of so close and, and to feel that. David, obviously your moment of the year was when we finally saw the the Johan Zarco backflip again. But other than that, <laughs> yeah, but, what was your moment of the year? Well, I mean, like uh, th- there's lots of moments of the year, which are all of the moments during which I got to ride my motorbike to a motorbike race, which is just the best thing you can ever do ever. Um, and next year, I'm hoping to do maybe two very long road trips. I'm, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. You know, maybe uh, Barcelona and Magella back to back and then Austria. So uh, but we shall have to wait and see. Um, but, uh, like, uh, apart from that, my moment of the year was, um, the pre-event press conference with Jorge Martin and Pekka Banyaya. Um, obviously they rode on, they rode Mahindras together. There were a lot of Indian journalists, uh, uh also Donna were trying to hype up this, you know, like, you know, the, the BFFs, um, uh, thing going on between the two of them, ex-teammates. And in India, in India, yeah, uh, and also uh, the, the the Indian journalist trying to uh, sort of going, you know, well, tell us about your time together, and uh, 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 do, do you still lean on each other? Are you still friends? And they were like, nope, uh, no interest. Uh, <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was clear. They made it very clear that you know they were friends, and they've got nothing against each other. It's just that they are now rivals. They have no interest in being friends, and they're trying to beat each other and win a bloody champion. That was, and I, I really liked that because that's what you know, they're supposed to. When two people want something like that, that's what sports is about. Sports is extremely silly. It's extremely silly for someone to want to be able to do something else better than someone else. It's completely meaningless. Um, uh, so you might as well, uh, you know, add a little bit of excitement by by having a little bit of a, of a niggle in in there. And uh, for you, Neil, other than Pedro Acosta's big dick energy press conference, <laughs> what was your personal highlight of the year? Um, well, it's interesting, Steve, because that came in the Indonesian GP, the aftermath of uh, the Moto2 race. Uh, I'm going to plump for the qualifying session, Moto GP qualifying in Indonesia. It sounds very niche indeed, but I think you'll all of you will admit that there are times doing this job where you do question whether you still absolutely love it as much as you did when you first started whether you still have that sort of twinkle in the eye when you watch a race on Sunday as you did when you were 12 13 whenever you first got into the sport um and you know with the kind of rigorous time schedule want a time away from home blah 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 um there are times I think this year where it was sort of like oh just feel a bit exhausted a bit burnt out a bit worn out um but and I was I must say I was, I was a wee bit anxious going away for the uh, the kind of the final six weeks of the season just because it was such a massive trip and I knew it was going to be so so busy. Um, basically, yeah, I was uh, I, w- I wasn't necessarily looking forward to it. But then when we got to Indonesia, um, we were doing qualifying. It was actually a really exciting qualifying session. I think Pekko managed to get knocked out of Q one by Bastianini, and. Um, there weren't many journalists in the Indonesian press office. Obviously, 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 all the photographers were right on track. And um, yeah, I just find that I was kind of alone by myself watching qualifying, screaming and shouting at the TV. And I was thinking, you know what? I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't really still love this. I still had that. It was a moment which reconfirmed that the fire was still burning inside. And um, yeah, it was just uh, it was just one of those little moments where I was like, you know what? I do, I do still love this. And it confirmed to me that, yeah, yeah, it's it's all good. All, all is well in the world. Yeah, it is one of those ones, Neil, that you do need that reminder. That's where Superbikes is actually pretty good because with only 12 rounds, I don't really have any gripes about the calendar. I don't have any real issues about you know being away for, for too long because the year is, is structured pretty well. But there's times whenever I've thought, like, for, for my favourite moments of the year, it's actually just been... When you go out for dinner on the Friday night or the Saturday night, whatever it is, 
and you've just got everyone talking about what they've heard, what they've what they've found out through the course of the day, and everyone giving their little tidbits. And whenever that's going out for dinner with Chippy and Gordo and Alex and some of the guys, it's it's just really good because it's nice to have that time where everyone's able to just reflect on what they're getting. And they're they're my favourite moments of the year for sure. But I've got one last hidden topic on today's podcast. Now, David, I already heard from you last week about what's on your wish list for Santa. And uh, for Adam and for Neil, we've talked about the Superbikes Illustrated History book from Kev Cameron. And um, we've talked about all, uh, for Motocourse and Matt Oxley's new book. But on your on your Christmas wish list, what's top of the list? Well, I think I'm contractually obliged to mention uh, the latest edition of Motocourse, and I have no vested interest in that whatsoever. But it is the apart uh, from the fact that you wrote half of it. Yeah, where's our copies? <laughs> you haven't given me your addresses, you sillies. Oh, what um, a cop out! <laughs> but yeah, it is the, uh, the the kind of the definitive uh, written. Um, journal of, of what has happened uh, also Stephen Davidson's new book The Dunlop Dynasty very excited to uh, get my hands on a copy of that uh, Stephen Davidson obviously legendary Northern Irish photographer um, has been photographing the roads and road racing for I don't know how many decades but um, he has a new compilation out on yeah the, the Dunlop family which I think will be really really interesting obviously for us we spent a lot of the season putting up content on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast that's going to be the case all the way through the winter as well and we're going to try and have some bite-sized shows um every couple of weeks as well just where we'll pick a topic we'll do 10 minutes on it and then uh, we'll be able to post that on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast as ever because this is the last show of the year a massive thank you to Renthal street for making it possible for us to be able to to work all the way through the campaign on the Paddock Pass podcast. So check out rentall.com and go to the Fit My Bike option to be able to see all the parts that are available for whatever bike you have. Adam, Neil, David, I'm going to wish you all a happy Christmas. And Dave, and sorry, Neil, you're going to be very excited. You've got two weeks without seeing any of us. <laughs> I, I can barely believe it, Steve. I'm yeah, let's get the show finished. Let's get the show finished. <laughs> Sadly, Steve, it's not necessarily true because Adam and I are meeting on Friday to uh, record a couple of uh, Patreon special shows. So um, not quite done for the year, but almost. And also, I know it's almost Christmas time because Neil's going to buy the coffees. So December the 25th must be around the corner. But I would also like to add, um, you know, a massive thank you to everyone who's sort of listened because we're up to almost 1.2 million listens for the whole of 2023, which is a a pretty cool figure. I think it's, you know, we're we're growing every year. People are obviously liking the podcast. And I think it's important, guys, if you are regular listeners, just to drop us a line somewhere, whether it's on Twitter or Patreon or SoundCloud you know, wherever you kind of listen to your podcast, let us know if there's anything you'd like to see different for next year, because we're open to um, ideas and suggestions. Um, so yeah, just get in touch. Yeah, three of us are open to ideas and suggestions. And uh, David, um, obviously, you're not stuck in the mud at all, are you? I'm not. No, 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 no. I'm also open to suggestions. But um, there is a very small chance I might ignore them. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I generally do. And it's usually a very bad idea for me to do so. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, like, yeah, again, thanks to everyone for listening. It's been it's genuinely astonishing that um uh, that how many people uh, listen to us and enjoy it. And do please share it with friends. If you know anyone who's into MotoGP and isn't listening and enjoys podcast, do pass on our details. Yeah, even if they only want to listen to 30 seconds, it still gives us the listen and that's all that matters for Adam's <laughs> stats. Um, <laughs> as it is, though, a big thank you, like I said, to everyone for supporting us on Patreon, for Renthal Street for supporting the pod and for all the other sponsors that have been involved through the course of the year. of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. Music is provided by the Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.